It's Banya 82, one day at a time, day 14. The veritable Bastille Day of our tournament, and that's appropriate because Sprats are involved, and this is where they emerge. See what I did there, Mick? I like that. Rob, Thank you. no, that is, that is primo gold standard broadcasting introductory work. Thank you. That, see, this is why you're here. I was wondering, <laughs> and, and not not just from a technical point of view, like day fourteen of rewatching the nineteen eighty two World Cup. If you're not wondering why you're here, and that goes for you, listeners as well, I'd be worried. Care on, how are you? Bonjour, allez le bleu. That's a change. We usually get a bit of Spanish. Hola, today. amigos. <laughs> <laughs> Just as a, as a backup. Oh, have we got a show for them today, Mick? What a day! Yeah, yeah. No, this is lovely. Now, this is this is Joyce. Like you know, two games that, to be fair, mightn't pop off the uh, pop off the sheet to people. Uh, France, Austria, and Poland, Belgium. First games of the second phase of a World Cup, which we have to explain in a minute exactly what a second phase is. But um, it is it is a bit of a moment, especially for the French. We see them in their Grand sweep and no platini, but yet still, there's a grand sweep, isn't there? It's just oh, it's beautiful, glorious. Jerseys hanging out, socks not even pulled up, right? Balls just being sprayed across the park. Austrians running backwards, going, But well, do we actually have to try in this game? I can't remember <laughs> all that kind of stuff. France, oh. France have clearly all been knocked on the head, <laughs> and, yeah. and when, when they yeah. came around, they were told they're Brazil. <laughs> yeah. It's class, isn't it? Shaggy-haired creators all over the field. They just—it's like they've gone. Oh, we're just going. It's almost like the footballing gods have decided we're going to teach Austria a lesson here, and yes. we are going to we are going to apply our wrath, our joyous wrath, yeah. through the medium of France. Yeah, and we are just going to annihilate the Austrians one nil. I, I was going to say annihilation by a one nil scoreline. <laughs> well, someone, someone in the room somewhere must have went at some point because this is the guy who got kicked out. Gone, uh, lads. What, what about like like a defensive midfielder? Get out! Get out! <laughs> I do. Who said that? Get out! There is barely a defensive midfielder. That even, God bless the like, defense. Even their defensive midfielder, Jean Tigana. Oh, he's not. I'm right. like, he, he is, is, but oh, he's right. not. He's not. He's the least defensive defensive midfielder I've ever seen. He's, ever. he's, he's an utter, utter joy to watch in this. Isn't oh. he? He's glory. He's the, he's the man of the day for me. Yes. Tegan But we'll come to that, I suppose. Come here. Poland, blow our minds today. And we haven't even mentioned them. How many minutes are we in? Three minutes and 55 I seconds in. I, like, I've, I've got a theory now. And I know yeah. this is only the first day of the group phase. But I think... Mm-hmm. Like the real contenders were just using phase one. Do I call it phase one? Mm-hmm. They were just phase they one. were just using phase one, like those run-in friendlies that you actually have before a World Cup in order to find form. Possibly, but here's the thing, right? You see, for me, that would be my assumption about France. That exactly what you just said—that they're using it as a bit of a run-in. You know, we'll be right for when we need to be right. But this French team didn't come in being expected to do anything. Yeah. So there is that. Now, the Poles, I would agree with you. They've got a little bit of seasoning as regards timing their run in tournaments. And they have been like, they were excellent in their last group game against Peru. They shattered them and they absolutely shatter Belgium God, here. So true. It's eight goals in two games. Yeah. Wow. They're flying. Po- Poland are on fire. Yeah. Amazing. 
Mick, quickly, uh, yes. Kieran, chime in if there's anything that he misses here. Some of our listeners, lots of them, will not even begin to understand how we've got to the second round and they're talking about groups again. It's a bit yes. mind-boggling and it needs to be explained. I, I'm going to do this once. Yeah. I'm not accepting any follow-up questions. I, I'm so looking forward to this because I really want to know how they decided in three team groups which one's got two first seeds and which one's got two second seeds and like there is a there is such an inequity to how these groups pan out yes. i have to know Pens- why yes yes you see everything that kieran said there that's why i'm not taking any follow-up questions, questions right <laughs> just to i don't have answers for any of that <laughs> okay i'm just going to read it out and what I would say to listeners is, listen, of course, listen, but then discard everything I say and just concentrate on who's in the groups and off we go. Anyway, here's what they decided to do for phase two. So the placings for phase two were determined before the tournament. So as the first round is going along, teams can see where they may end up. So in the second phase, there are four groups of three teams, A, B, C, and D. So groups A and B, were to include one team from groups one to six, okay? Mm. And once those teams were taken out, group C and D had the remaining six teams. So the winners of groups one and three go into group A. That's Poland and Belgium, okay? Mm. The winners of groups two and four go into group B. That's West Germany and England. Mm -hmm. The winner of group five goes into group D. That's Northern Ireland. And the winner of group six goes into group C, that's Brazil, okay? Now, let's move it along. The runner-up in group six goes into group A. So that gives us Poland, Belgium, and the USSR. The runner-up in group one and three goes into group C. So that gives us Brazil, Argentina, and Italy, the group of death. Uh, And the runner-up in group five goes into group B, where we have the winners of groups two and four, West Germany, England, and Spain still with us. Still yeah, there? All good? Here, yeah. The square root of the hypotenuse is what? <laughs> yeah, and then, and then, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then the butler did it. And the runner-up, <laughs> the runners-up, I should say, in groups two and four, go into group D. So that gives us Northern Iron, France, and Austria. So uh, there was obviously some of the... V- some of the teams that finished top in the groups in Group 1 kind of probably screwed up what they thought the groups in the second phase would look like. For example, today, Poland and Belgium uh, in Barcelona. By the way, the games now have moved away out of the totality of Spain and are now in Madrid and Barcelona, right? Mm. So Poland and Belgium play in front of a practically empty stadium in Barcelona because people assume that that's going to be Argentina versus Italy. But because Poland and Belgium finished top of their groups, it's Poland and Belgium, and the locals really don't give a flying fazoo. And we're going to have Brazil playing Argentina. Yeah. In, I like Mill Street or something. It, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. It, like yeah. we've got a rather empty looking camp now here, and I kid you not. <laughs> I'd say the ticket touts are going to have an absolute killer of a day on Brazil, Argentina, and Brazil, Italy. It's just, it's just, re- oh, and by the way, I forgot there was one other thing. What, with oh, the permutations? You'll be fascinated to hear Okay, this. go first. So, so we know the first set of games, mm-hmm. but we don't know the next set of games because that depends on who wins. Hang on, the, the oh. three teams in each group 
Yes. So there's three games. Sorry. Either statements, not questions. No, Rob. Carry on. Yeah. There's, there's three games. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, each team is going to have a buy in one of these, let's say, rounds of games. Yes, exactly. So what you're saying to me is they can tell you the first game in each group, but they didn't know what the second game was? No. Let's take France Austria as an example. So Northern Ireland are sitting this one out. So the losers of France versus Austria will play again against Northern Ireland. That'll be Northern Ireland's first game. I have game. a now, question. Sorry, <laughs> I have another statement to make which may answer your question. Okay. If it's a draw... Oh, okay, no question. You see? You see, I'll cover yeah, well all played, well played. It's already preordained what way it will go. But if there's a winner, that supersedes the preordained idea of the draw. So look, as <laughs> I say, just forget all that now, okay? Just forget it, I would suggest. Yeah. And let's just let's just move on to these to group phase two part one. Wait, yeah? the one last thing I'm going to add not a not a question. I'm just going yeah, to add a point that you probably will agree with that only one team will come out of each of these groups. In case you keep in track of that for the semi-finals. Oh, look at you! I, wow, I mean, Northern Ireland are going to fly in here. Hey, can they I, might you. They can might I, you. Can I just tell you what Northern Ireland reckoned? Just while you mention it there, Karen, because I think it's worth. Uh, Billy Bingham was hoping for an Austrian win against mm-hmm. the French to put him under a bit of pressure because the French had beaten Northern Ireland 4-0 earlier in the year. Uh, but he did also say, if I had met France and Austria in the first phase, I would have been quite happy. They play European-type football. They do. And we can take them, all right? Mm-hmm. But that smoke it. But he's confident, lads. He's confident. This is the same Billy Bingham who admittedly was quoted in a column of the Times, and we do sometimes wonder how verbatim they are quoted. But anyways, that did suggest that, like, what are we supposed to do? We can't be expected to attack Yugoslavia. We can't expect it to... I mean, we don't have the players. We don't have the quality. Now he thinks he's going to win the freaking World Cup. I like uh, yeah, but he's got a win under his belt, Rob. He's bouncing hey, with confidence. Oh, baby. Bouncing, baby. I love the way that we're going to break here for an absolute outstanding guest to set the scene for today. So it's, it's France, Austria... Make set it up here. Filippo Claire is joining us. Colin came along for the chat as well. But uh, yeah, we've we've got a gem of a guest here, a man who uh, yeah had a lot to say on this. Yeah. So look, it's France Austria. In terms of the game itself, we're looking to see what are the French going to be like. Obviously, in the second phase, because we have already said before that they're improving all the way through this competition. From losing three one to England in the first game, they're gradually improving, and more so, we're looking to see how the Austrians will be after the non-performance the last day. Um, but to have Philippe on is fantastic. Another thing that we've discussed, and Kieran, you've you've talked uh, talked to this a good bit in in the previous episodes. It's where football is in France in terms of the culture, yeah. in terms of popularity. What do yeah. people think of the eighty two team? Because as we've seen, this team is evolving through this competition. They've made wholesale changes to the team at the World Cup. Uh, they've had a bunch of different goalkeepers. It's all in flux. So where? Where is France right now? Because when we look back, we have a different view of them after this World Cup. But where are they right now? I can't wait to hear Philippe explain why they had more goalkeepers than Spinal Tap had drummers. I didn't get to that question. I don't know how that happened. Oh, uh, slack. That's a shame. Austria, nil. France, one. Joining us on Espana 82 on a day that France just started to discover themselves and the emergence of this team that we, we saw the Republic of Ireland beating the qualifiers and thought, how are they that good at all? To seeing, seeing England score three goals on them in game one. But now 
on this first day of the second phase we're starting to go oh here is the side we've heard all about Philippe Auclair you are very welcome to Espana 82 one day at a time thanks for joining us thank you very much for having me and uh, talking about uh, some very important moments in my very young life at the time Yes, you see, this is what we were wondering. We never want to suggest that you will be old enough to remember it or been there oh, or whatever. What is your memory of 82? Where did you watch it? Uh, I think I watched it mostly at my parents' home, so in Normandy. Um, I obviously wasn't travelling with the French team. I didn't have the money. I wasn't probably old enough either and uh, to do it on my own. And um, I remember it as the probably the formative World Cup for me in terms of um, how much I enjoyed the tournament, which I still believe to be the, the greatest World Cup ever staged. I mean, I, I love everything about it. I love the teams which were part in it. I love the uh, good versus evil narrative which runs throughout the tournament. Uh, there are so many stories. Um, and the quality of the football, honestly, it's probably, I think, the last World Cup at which you could say that the, the quality of the, of the play that was produced by those teams, some of which are amongst the greatest in their nation's history, was on a level which was above that of club football. Loads of great players, and yes, I say great teams, one of the great Brazilian teams of all time, one of the great Italian teams, whatever people say, and <laughs> certainly one of the most evil German teams um, of all time. Not one of the greatest French national teams of all time, but one which is about to become it. It's part of the development. And emotionally speaking, it was such an extraordinary tournament. So for all these reasons, you know, and, and perhaps also my, I was much younger then, and uh, probably more impressionable. So yeah, I absolutely adored it. So I'm, I'm very, look, very much looking forward to, uh, to relive some of the most important moments and also what it meant for for our football, for for French football, where, and because it led to probably the game that defined a generation and probably defined, I suppose, a national football identity and still does today. Yeah, because we we're definitely going to talk about that. But I'm interested in impressionable versus. Uh, versus quality so like we we started this project around Italian 90 because it meant so much to us not just as a nation but for all of us but the football was rubbish in 1990 it was rubbish but but we we have such romantic views of because it was our first World Cup so so what I'm saying is Hmm. even separating your experience of that seeing the World Cup in in its fullest form as the first time which is one thing but the quality holds up because we're watching this fresh if you like uh, and we're blown away by the quality of, of a large it's extraordinary isn't it I mean some of the number of classics and, and teams which perhaps you wouldn't think necessarily of as being you know great teams you realise my goodness they were they were seriously good uh, how many African teams have been better in the World Cup than Algeria in 82 yes you tell me agreed agreed weren't they a beautiful side sensational Anyway, sensational yeah. side. And their story, Philippe. I mean, we've talked about it. I mean, oh. you know, from independence. Yeah, let's not revisit it because it's too painful, team. really. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. Uh, and well, the, the good thing is that the bad guys got their comeuppance in the end. And uh, so when I say there's a lot of good versus evil in this World Cup, the other satisfact- satisfying thing is that good triumphs over evil or, or not so evil triumphs against complete evil. Philippe, I, I'm... I, I'm... Genuinely fascinated because, as Rob pointed out, um, I, like him, I'm too young to remember 1982. I was only a couple of years old, but I had older brothers. Ireland weren't at this World Cup, but they had kind of captured the 
the whole sense, or, or there was huge anticipation, excitement that we might get there after beating France and, and all throughout the group. Um, yeah. And I've never properly examined this with my older brothers, but for some reason, France was the team that they focused on. And as you so eloquently do uh, when, when you often speak about these things, I think so much of it was about the romance of not just the football, but the jersey and the names and all of these more sort of, I don't know, um, subconscious or ethereal elements of, of the entire tournament. And for me, as a seven, eight-year-old growing up, I remember the names of like Jean Tiganin, Gires, and obviously Platini, having never, ever seen them play or ne never seen their faces or known what they looked like. So there was, and I think that's, that's a, that was a common enough thing in Ireland that there was a, a fascination with France. I think there always has been um, with French sport. But where was French football in, I guess, the French national consciousness in 1982 was like, and pardon my ignorance here, but was rugby and, and, and cycling, was it way above those? Was it on a par? Was it a hugely popular team uh, and football in the country? Where, where was it in the, in the run-up and uh, in the lead-up to well. that World Cup? <laughs> That's a big question. Uh, I would have I would have thought cycling. It's the uh, Bernardino era, so I would say. And Fignon is arriving, so cycling is top of the list. Um, I would have thought. I mean, as the World Cup is coming uh, is drawing nearer, I would say football goes above rugby, and also there is a progression which you know starts. I'm not saying starts in terms of how people are working towards making French football better because that's the early 70s. The moment when the public consciousness starts to change is the qualification for the 78 World Cup. That's, and that's basically the coming onto the scene of the Platini-Gires generation. Then there is the 78 World Cup where France plays some amazing football, honestly. Um, I don't know if you're going to do 78 again, but we may well, yeah. Watch Argentina, Argentina, France, 1978. For me, is one of the most beautiful games I've ever seen, and I and I rewatched it because I wanted to make sure I was not romanticizing it. And I thought, no, it's football as art from both sides. It's just the kind of football that we have lost. It's kind of football that makes Jorge Valdano weak at the knees. You know, it's slower, but slow can be beautiful and. And technically speaking, these guys are better than the players we've got now. I'm sorry to say that. Or they appear to be better because they've got more space and time to express their technicality. Anyway, so 78 is a big moment because we are eliminated from the World Cup because of a very, very odd penalty given to us against Argentina. Uh, and then we're, th we're already thinking, OK, we've got, we'll take our revenge. Our revenge would be uh, 1982. And, and things are not necessarily going... Easy. I mean, you you were talking about the vic the win about of of, um, of the Republic uh, over France, the three two. We wasn't watched it? that, Philippe. Yeah, we watched that whole game for an extra podcast. Yeah, and Our, it was Republic a good Irish team, wasn't it? It yeah. was a very good yeah. Irish team, and and it was it was a by, by the way, it was such a tough group. I mean, come on, this was Belgium not a, this was not a bad Belgian <laughs> team, and this was yeah. not a bad Dutch team. And I think it completely changes when Platini scores that, that goal against the Netherlands in the 2 nil win, which means that France basically, I think afterwards we only have to win against uh, Cyprus um, to go to the World Cup. And that's, that's a given because we've, we've put seven goals past them in the first um, group uh, game. So that moment, people start to believe. 
And also, Michel Hidalgo is is a kind of manager who is he's very popular. People like his uh, hang dog expression, uh, the way he speaks. Uh, also, we have a team that we know have we have got some very very special players in that team, and we've seen them grow and they're reaching their their peak basically. So, or they're about to reach their peak. And obviously, everybody will think about Michel Platini, but there are others. You know, I mean, Manuel Amorós, for example, still a very young man at the time. And, and of course, the Carré Magique. The fact that we have probably the best group of midfielders ever assembled by any team in the history of the sport. And that's a fact. Uh, it, yeah. it, it, is, it, it is a fact. It's just, I mean, there have been individually perhaps better players, but the, the way they dovetail each one into the, the magic, role of the other. The magic square which comes out of this, isn't it? Yeah, the Carré Magique yeah, is in, in this type. tournament. And, and and Luis will come in it, and Luis is not part of it because Luis will will only you know he's uh, he's the he's the little b- baby boy, is Gengini at the time. Gengini, by the way, whom I think is a little bit of a forgotten hero in that in that nineteen eighty two team because without him, I don't know. We've been so impressed with him, Philippe. We've been so I was going to ask you about him because he keeps coming up in our team of the days. And uh, tell me more about him because he's an interesting story. At this point, he only had eight caps, twenty four years of age, but he's so important to what they do. Yeah, I mean, the the, the thing is, is um, you know, the he's also people remember him uh, in France. I, I genuinely think it's really unfair. First, first of all, you've got... Because it's a team that is a team over, I would say, four major tournaments. So 78, 82, 84, 86. So we, we tend to consider this as a continuum. And right. there's a reason for that, because it's the Platini continuum. And there are some players, you know, like Rocheteau, uh, like uh, Tigana, uh, like uh, Gires, like Maxime Bossis who have been part of almost the whole arc. So we tend to think of that, this is the group. But Gengini, it's really one competition that he is exceptional in. And therefore, he's put a bit to the side. He didn't play, again, I don't want to say anything stupid, but I think at the time he was playing for Sochaux, wasn't it? And, uh, um, he certainly started there. I don't know. Let me just double-check that. The time yes, he, he was, st- yeah, yeah. He, play he joined so- Saint-Étienne after this, yeah. So, uh, so my memory is not completely short, which is great. Um, but he was not part of one of the big, big teams. I mean, Social was, you know, serious team with serious financial backing from uh, Peugeot, uh, the car manufacturer. Uh, but it was not a sexy team. You know, it was not. Uh, it was not Marseille. It was not Saint Etienne. Or it was not even not. You know, one of those teams. So there's that. Perhaps there's his uh, style because he also looks. Does he look like a footballer? No, he doesn't. He looks like the guy. Uh, I don't know, he, he reminded me of the guys you could see on their moped going to the cinema on a Friday evening, you know, in a provincial town. He physically is not particularly, I mean, imposing, but I mean, technically, in terms of skill, this left foot of his is just crazy, and the right foot is not bad either. So yes, I think completely underestimated. And also, I think that perhaps the reason for that is that his career afterwards didn't quite uh, match what people... Uh, were expecting or hoping of him and also because he's been very discreet in the media, he's not somebody whom you see interviewed or you saw interviewed he's not somebody who put himself across like some of the others to be honest, I mean his post-football life is something I know very very little about Uh, did he go into management? I couldn't tell you, I think probably, maybe I don't know Uh, but he he more or less disappeared And, and that's that he more or less disappeared and and it's, you know, like some of the players who 
who were actually crucial in that particular team. Another one is Jacques Zimaco, you know, who was very, very important before, without whom, perhaps, we wouldn't have gone to that World Cup. So there, there are players like this who, who, who are, in a way, left aside. There are always some in any, any successful team who are left aside by, by the bigger ones and by the narrative. They don't quite fit in. You know, that, that's the thing. He, and, and also, he was not, when you think about uh, Sevilla, because we can only think, I mean, we have to think about Sevilla all of the time, because we keep thinking about Sevilla all of the time. Uh, is he a name that comes to mind? No, the names that come to mind is uh, Platini, is uh, Rocheteau, is uh, Gires, Marius Trésor, and of course, poor Maxime Bossis with his head in his hands at the end. And Batiston. Just speaking about <clears throat> fitting in, uh, Philippe, and pardon the digression here, Rob, but I, I read a stat yesterday just to bring it forward to, to, the, to Qatar. Uh, of the African nations in Qatar that are playing in this World Cup, 55 players who weren't born in their countries. There's 55 players of, of the African nations. I think there's five African nations in Qatar. 55 of the players aren't born in their countries, and 33 of them were born in France. Um, and if you bring it back to 1982, we're 20 years after the end of the uh, war in Algeria, obviously. Um, and two players in particular that stand out for us as we're watching these games, obviously, Artigana and the other one you mentioned just there, uh, uh, Trezor, pardon my pronunciation, uh, Marius Trezor. Uh, Tigana was born in Mali and Trezor was born in the French West Indies. Race, and I know this is a, a rabbit hole we could go down and, and never return from, but race, which was something that it was, uh, I suppose, so became such a big triumphalist issue uh, post 1998. Uh, but in 1982 in France, and something that came up in one of the earlier podcasts we did when we were talking about Algeria and we were talking about the fact that. Um, Zidane, Zidane would have been five or six years old in 1982, watching Algeria play, probably with his Algerian-born parents. Where was 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 race such an issue with the likes of Tigana and Trezor playing in these teams? Was that an issue? Were they outliers, or was the French league at the time was it a very natural thing that these guys would be part of those teams? Uh, it's a subject to which I could devote a book, and in fact, I probably am. Um... And I have done, I think it's a book that I've been writing since I started writing about such topics about 25 years ago. Because I think uh, people who are not French, and I really mean no offense in that, do not understand our football at all. Our football is a football of immigration, always has been a football of immigration. Look at the list of people, of the players who represented us in the 1934 and 38 World Cups. Uh, the, the great 58 team, uh, which was, you know, finished third. Uh, it's a football of immigration, and because of that, and it's not new. Uh, the, the team in '78 was also a, a rainbow team, uh, you know. And and I'm looking actually, I'm looking now at the starting eleven against Germany. Okay, Manuel Amoros, Spanish, Jean-Luc Ettori, Italian, Bernard Gengini, Italian, Gérard Janvion, West Indian, Michel Platini. Italian, Jean Tigana, Mali, Marius Trezor, West Indies, um, subs, Christian Lopez, Spain. That's it. That, that, and, and, and for us, it made no sense to think of it as people coming from this or that part. Uh, we, the first player who represented, first player of color who represented France was as early as 1920. Yeah. 
and it was not the, it was not the one cap hero. He was Raúl uh, Diani, or Diani, was a fulcrum of the side for you know over a decade, and might have become a captain actually if you know. <laughs> 1939 that had happened um, and would have become a very important person indeed in in, uh, in the French national team um, and he was and he was black and you know what I've been looking and this because this, this is the story that really interests me um, very very much I've gone through all the match reports of the French national team in which he played part and there have been quite a few about 20 I think which for the time was was a quite a high number in not in one of those reports is his race even alluded to not even in the way that the nicknames like you know all these players who were nicknamed uh, the black pearl or the whatever you name it which you know in which now we would look at and frown about about you know because we think mm, you know it's a bit problematic at the time it you know it certainly wasn't meant that way at all uh, but in the case of, of January I mean the uh, he was he was nicknamed the spider, and I would say certainly not because people think, oh, the black spider, that's terrible. No, no, no. Just have a look at the picture of him; you'll understand. Uh, he, he had incredibly long legs and arms, and also he tended he, he he when he took care of his opponents, he was like a spider, uh, merciless. And he had a, a great career in French football, and it, and it goes on and on. So the whole discourse about. Uh, about race in French football. I'm not saying that some people outside of football didn't have it. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying that even I, re I remember from the very, very early on, it was a matter of some amusement uh, with some people that uh, when they looked at the French team, uh, there were barely any French names uh, in them. Uh, if you look at the 58 team, for example, you will see a lot of people who come from you know, Hungarian um, uh, extraction, um, Obviously, people fleeing the Nazis as well. Loads of. Uh, we even had um, an Englishman, Aston, uh, in the in the 1930s. Nobody called him Aston. We called him Aston, and uh, and it, and it goes on. It's a tradition, <laughs> and 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 people see it, you know, because France won in '98. People put this have this idea that there was this brand new revolutionary thing happening in French football. No, no, no. It was always thus. It's just that. You guys, you are a bit late to the show. We were very early to that show. For a simple reason, if you're an immigrant, you obviously, most of the time, you're going to be working uh, in the industry or small jobs, whatever. Even if you've got a diploma, if you're the smartest people, you, you come in, uh, you're going to do any kind of job just to survive and to make... So, so you're part of the working class. Football is a working class game. We've got loads of immigrants, therefore there are loads of immigrants playing football. So there are loads of immigrants who represent France in the national team because we had people in charge of the national team, whatever their faults might be, they were not looking at the colour of a player before saying he can play for, for France, unlike some people across the channel at the English FA, where we know that it was a big problem to, to have such a thing. So mm. France is not perfect, but on that particular side, France, French football has been ahead of, of most others and for a very long time. It's always been thus. And for French fans, it made absolutely no sense to have any... Uh, to question the fact that you would have a Trésor. Trésor was my hero. And and I think these, these guys in many ways yeah, were... They were teachers uh, as, as well as players. And I, I, no, our manager was Michel Hidalgo. He's Spanish. 
And uh, mm. it's Spanish, but it's super French. It was, there was nobody more Frenchier than Michel Hidalgo. And I could say there's nobody Frenchier than Michel Platini. So, um, <laughs> so that's, the way, that's the way it went, you know. We didn't think like that. We, the question was not even raised. That's, I know that sounds crazy, but it's absolutely true. As this team evolves through the tournament, like Tigana comes in, into this game now, uh, Platini is a slight injury, so he misses out on the Austria game. Obviously, they get a, a nice group, but they get great momentum out of that group as well. They beat Northern Ireland comfortably. Goals are coming from all directions. Um, there's no there's no one key source. There's a changing squad, dramatically changing. I think only five players involved maybe four uh, Mick has the stat from the Republic of Ireland loss in the qualifiers to the team that would end up playing West Germany so it's a phenomenal amount of change uh, tell me for you and tactical changes yes, as well so just explain for our listeners how that evolved and, and what, what ended up on the field against West Germany were, were people just getting more and more excited oh, gosh, as yes. this team was coming together within oh the tournament? my goodness yes and I think the moment when we really because the, the group phase was dodgy and, and of course the World Cup everybody will remember started very very badly for France <laughs> uh, thanks to a certain Brian Robson and um, which is a goal that is seared in my mind and we thought oh no not again and then, you know, we were not perhaps in the most difficult of groups. And so we progressed through it, you know, but not very convincingly. The competition very convincingly. And in fact, it's funny, you said that we are on the day of France-Austria. Or was it Austria-France or France-Austria? France mm. Yes, yeah, that's the day, that's the day you're on. Yeah. And it's probably the first game when we, we think, ooh, actually we're playing some rather yes. decent football. Great. At the number of chances we created... Uh, before Genjini's, you know, perfection, perfect uh, uh, free kick. Uh, I mean, Rocheteau had chances, Six had chances, Gires had chance. I mean, created chance after chance after chance, and they were really good chances and created, created by playing the kind of football that we want to equate with the French national team, which means, you know, a lot of imagination, a lot of uh, risk-taking, and it's kind of Rocheteau with his hair flopping in the wind, and um, so quite quite romantic football. There's no there's no holding midfielder, Philippe. You know, so one thing that seems to happen in this game is every time they lose the ball, the back four are just taking on so much pressure. Like you really, there's something missing in that end. Maybe, yeah, well, maybe not, that's yeah, absolutely. Which is something which would come later to to to, to France. You know, but but not in yes. this particular competition. And it, it was incredibly fluid. When you look at the uh, tactical setup. Which, by the way, Michel Platini had a lot of say in, uh, as he had a lot of say in who was part of the team or not. You probably are aware of the story with Jean-François Larios and why Jean-François Larios. Oh, yeah. we have we have spoken yeah, about that in quite, game one. It's wow, quite, it's quite amazing a good one. story. Yeah. Um, uh, but for example, sometimes uh, France would play. We, people would call that a diamond these days, but I'm not too sure. We played with false wingers was a big thing for us. Um, and sometimes Platini himself, you will see his positioning is changing from game to game. And sometimes we will play with, I mean, the fact if you it changes everything. Have you got Didier Cis or have you got have you got uh, Dominique Rocheteau? Or have you got both? It changes everything in the way you're going to play. Mm. And because of that, it's, it creates a very fluid environment where, but where there was an amazing uh, understanding uh, between the players. We said there's no holding midfielder, I would say the closest would be Jean Tigana, obviously, who is the more defensively minded of, of the four. But 
when we look at his the way he plays now, he spends most of his time driving towards the opposition's box. Then uh, yeah, he's, he's absolutely amazing. Well, he's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Full stop. He he's what. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, anyways, yeah, but just to see him uh, emerge into the tournament is like, wow, what, what yeah, a guy to come into the squad yeah. when Platini isn't there. But the significance of what follows, so they beat Northern Ireland 4-1. Now they're ready. Platini's back and fit. Everyone's ready. We know there's an unbelievable yeah. game coming around the corner. Uh, 3-3, phenomenal game. But remembered years later for only one reason, the impact of that whole game on French football, your memories of it, the emotions, well, the emotions haven't really. It's I still feel really um, quite a lot of pain. Um, it's amazing. It's, it's still smart. I mean, pain is too too much. It's still smart, and I think so do all of the people who who watch that game. It remains for me uh, a game that defines French football more than any other. It's more defining than the nineteen ninety eight World Cup final. It's more defining than the win against Spain in 1984, or certainly the 2018 World Cup, which is, to be honest, the um, title that people are quite happy about and proud of, but it, emotionally speaking, it brings very, very little. Emotionally speaking, this is the game of all games. Uh, for all the reasons, you know, you're going to talk about this at a later stage, because of, uh, against it's good versus evil. Uh, so it's a tragedy. It's, and actually, we were very close to having a genuine tragedy on the field as well. So we've got the arch-villains, and goodness gracious me, I mean, the Germans had outdone themselves in finding arch-villains in that particular team. There were quite a few. Schumacher was not the only one. Then there is the opposition between the, the nasty Germans, with my apologies to my German friends, and, uh, because that team was nasty, and, and Alain Gires. And you, you compare... You know, I would say the, the, the two great moments for me in terms of images, I mean, there are three. Of course, there's Schumacher uh, attempting uh, murder on, on Patrick Battiston, and not very far from succeeding, by the way, which is the one thing we should not forget, that Battiston was a lucky boy that day. There's Gires scoring the 3-1 goal and expressing... It's amazing, This for me, the two most beautiful celebrations we've seen in football, Marco Tardelli in the final... And Alain Gires, actually very similar, you know, with the, the arms extended. Pure joy, childhood, playing, you know, that's it. That's football at its purest. And on the other hand, you've got the horrible Germans. And, uh, <laughs> oh, God. I, 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 we saw I, them against Chile one, one, of, one of the days and we were being nice about them in between. We were like, yes, maybe, they are. maybe they're not that they, bad. They, they I mean, yeah, we like what he's doing. And then we see the oh, Austria game, awful. which we've just watched. Yeah, and we're, that's oh my God. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's more, the beginning. We know what's morally going. bankrupt team. And no, so because of that, no, it, it, it has a very special place. To give you an idea, when to celebrate the 30th anniversary of what was a defeat or an elimination... Um, my magazine, France Football, we had a special edition put out, especially with a DVD of the game. I, I, we haven't done that for in 2008 for the 10th anniversary or 2018 of the first world title. I think that tells you everything. It is the absolutely pivotal game in French football history. It's, it shows us that we're, just, we're very close. And then we will play probably one of the best tournaments that any team has ever played in 1984 with Platini being superhuman and then 86 as well we will play some classic games but it's a generation coming to an end but 
even though there's there's going to be there are going to be a few years when things are not going to work out too well, and then we're going to carry on. But basically, that's it. We've arrived. That's it. France was the, the country which had. We were an organizer, a sports organizer. You know, we we have the Olympic Games. We create FIFA. Apologies, guys. Uh, we create uh, the European Cup. We create the Ballon d'Or. We create all these things. We create the competitions. We're very good at that. But on the pitch, despite you know some decent teams, we're never quite there. And it starts in '76, and then there's a progression: '78, '82, '84, '86. You know, and 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 therefore that that particular team is a symbol of. What we're still missing, but where we're heading. And also, it helps to have... It's also a team which is loved abroad. Very important to be loved by other people. And, you know, people... After the tournament, people... I remember people telling me, we're so sorry for you. We're so sorry for you. You really deserve to go through. It would have been wonderful. You would have been world champions. You would have been beaten the Italians and so on. And it wasn't to happen. And because... Because it didn't happen, it's more precious. You know, uh, you know, your football fans. Yeah. The moments you remember uh, are, are the defeats more than anything, and um, which make it all the sweeter when finally you win something. Uh, but in in a way, we won that World Cup. Uh, Brazil as well won that World Cup. There were loads of winners in that World Cup. Northern Ireland won that World Cup. Algeria won that World Algeria. Cup. Yeah. Loads of winners. That's perhaps yeah. one of the reasons yeah. why. It is still held in such um, you know high regard, and why people see it as a as a tournament, also a tournament which was totally devoid of all the uh, the nastiness of Argentina '78. You know, it was a newly democratic Spain as well. People were looking forward to, and it, Spain was opening up. Uh, it was sandwiched in between Olympic Games, which had been boycotted by everybody, by the Soviets. And the British, and um, and 1984, which would be boycotted by the Eastern Bloc. So we, it was like, whew, sport, you know, yeah. sport can be nice, could be great. I'm wondering when when they returned because we were speaking earlier about some of the teams and how the reactions at home when they were defeated. The Salvadorians probably aren't a good example. They had a historic defeat, and but they came home and were ridiculed. But when this French team returned home. It probably gets lost in what happened later at the European Championships, but was there were they celebrated? I know it wasn't such a thing back then. The teams came home to homecomings and whatnot, but they did return as heroes, right? But there were no uh, big parades, or I mean, not that I remember. Maybe they happened, but they certainly did. I think the deception, disappointment—sorry, not deception, terrible Gallicism. Uh, the disappointment was such the, the 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 hurt was so acute that. I think it would have been strange to organize any kind of celebration, but there was an immense sense of pride and which was galvanized by a sense of injustice. So again, yeah, it, it, it was, they came back as heroes um, and they have remained heroes all, all along the way. You know, 2018, to be honest, I don't care much about it. It wasn't Russia for starters. We are not obs results obsessed in French sport and um, the fact that a team that lost would probably by many people certainly of older generations considered to be the greatest perhaps after 1998 because it was the first big 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 one um, is still remembered with such affection tells you everything you need to know about our relationship with sport which is a little bit strange you know 
It's like Laurent Fignon was never more popular than when he lost the Tour de France by a handful of seconds on the last day. And uh, because before that, we don't we don't really like winners. And and um, well, we do. I mean, they have to be very special people, like Teddy Riner, for example. The uh, the judo the judoka uh, is very special. At the moment, there's a whole thing about the French national rugby team because let's be fair, they're pretty damn good. And also because we've got the best player on the planet. Um, and and you know, sometimes yes, we we've learned to win, but it's taken a very very long time considering that we created. <laughs> The World Cup and the Olympic Games has taken us a very long time to become that. And in 82, it wasn't the case. We were not born winners at the time, I can tell you that. It's been an amazing journey for us so far. It's been fantastic to touch base with you. I had a really busy time, Philippe. So we, we thank you so much for your time um, and for joining us here on Espania 82. And look at, as our listeners follow along the tournament, we're only just getting to see, if you've just watched the Austrian game, you're going to get to see this team and all that makes them so, so special in the memories. Philippe, thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. All right. Our job now is very simple. It's to do what we do. Let's look at the games. Game one of our day, appropriately, having heard from Philippe, and a big thanks, Philippe, for joining us, uh, is to look at France's great result against Austria. Listen, the result actually, Nick, it doesn't begin to tell the tale of the way the game panned out. Wouldn't be the first time. No, 1-0 doesn't do justice to how magnificent France were and also how poor Austria were but we'll get to them in a second let's this is a day just to luxuriate in France but what's really interesting is Mm -hmm. that this performance occurs song Michel Platini so uh, injured I presume a tie issue a tie issue so he's he's not there um so Jean Tigana comes in Jean Tigana of course again if we look back we kind of go well why wasn't he in the team in the first place yes but there was a lot of there was a lot of similar type of midfield. Now Tigana was your classic box to box midfielder, would have been seen as a defensive midfielder ostensibly. But I mean, in this game, Kieran, you've already said it. He he's just marvelous. Like he he from the minute like literally this, from the first uh, this minute, is an ooh la la performance from Tigana. This is one of the joys of this is I remember Tigana from '86 onwards. Like this is the yeah. birth of a superstar. In this performance, yeah, he's just magnificent. I mean, he's he's passing, he's going past, he's going past players in a way that maybe other French midfielders so far in the competition haven't quite done. Not in the way he does it anyway. He rides with, with a tackle speed. better than any other player in this World Cup so far. He just yeah, skips he, over them, and then his ability to sidestep and get space when the yeah. defender thinks, "Okay, I'm set here," he's going to come straight towards me, and then suddenly, little sidestep. Boom, you're left standing there like a statue. Yeah, it's incredible. It's also, Mick, one of the things as well is, because we've joked that there wasn't much defensive midfielding going on, but like, if you watch him, actually, he is though. Like, he, he's, he's, he's looking back over his shoulder. He is, his spatial awareness, like for a guy who seems to be playing the game at like a, a laissez-faire pace, he is just alive to things. And you see how he reads things before anyone can see it coming. Yeah, he's 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 all over this game. I mean, he probably, I would imagine anyway, he hasn't featured in this World Cup so far, so he probably sees this as his opportunity. And it's a big game. You know, in the, the nature of this second phase, you only play two games. I mean, essentially, it's it's a second round and a quarterfinal in ways. Um, but it, like you have to win your first game. So it's a big, big game for France. And he absolutely grabs it. But I mean, everybody around him is playing well. But Gengini is 
brilliant in this again. Now he is a number ten. Like he is for his club, uh, social. He plays in the playmaker role that Platini plays for France. So he's had to reinvent himself a little bit, move back the field a little bit, and out to the left uh, to to get his spot on the team. But he's such a good player. So you have Tigana, you have Gengini. Uh, Bernard Lacombe starts, but he's carrying a knock into the game. He goes off after 15 minutes, and Dominique Rocheteau comes on. Yes. And I mean, you know, just fantastic. Eddie Van Halen with football boots comes in, and he just... And he, and he, he, and he it up. He's shredding it. He's he shredding it. He backs it up, though. He, this guy gets goals. This guy, yeah. I'm, I don't know uh, why he went in this game, he doesn't. But no, I mean, that's true. That's I, true. Fair let's point. talk about the free. Yeah. Oh, my God. Top... Top bin. Yeah. How far out, Kieran, would you say? Oh God, I'm rubbish on meters, but like he's out, he's what? He's 10 meters away from the box. Yeah. So, yeah Four miles. About, about a mile. Yeah, I, I, I'd I, say about 35 yards in, in old money. Yeah. It's amazing. It's a, over on the right-hand side of the box, uh, the, the Austrians are set up as you would. Uh, Concilia as we've spoken about before and he, he has a decent game here again he's a top class keeper I would say actually for me he's one of the best keepers I've seen in the tournament so far he's set up ready to go and Gingini just he both rifles and floats it if that's possible in one free kick it goes over, the, goes over the wall and just pings into the top corner Concilia comes across it makes Concilia look silly like because he comes across and he basically mangles himself against the post trying to get there but it's so well struck no one is stopping it. It is glorious. And follows up another Gengini free kick. He didn't he didn't he hit an absolute dinger against Kuwait as well? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. I just I like I, I had to look at it a couple of times. Do you know what? Like one of the things he knows when you're watching the footage back in the games is like look, we love watching the old football, but you, you do miss the, the 15 camera angles and the de- you know the detail. Of course you do. So sometimes sure. you kind of look at it going, wait, hang on, did that actually go in? It did go in and did it? You know, it, it, it it's actually the goal is actually made better for it. Because <laughs> you know, yeah. I think if they, if you did have five angles at it, the mythical elements of it would be missing. Well, I mean that goal comes what five, six minutes before halftime. By then, France could have been three or four. Oh, keep keep, go, keep going. Like they, they could have hit the Austrians for six in this game. Um, yeah. and, and actually, you're right. Concilio, like, now he, 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 he palms a few that you're going, oh, kid, you need to keep those in your hands. But he yeah. always gets, like he reacts straight away to be the first person on that, on the rebound. Yeah. Um, but like, like the Gangini could have had too. There was there was one offside as well. You know what I mean? So that's right. Yeah. Uh, like the score in this one certainly does not reflect their dominance, but it does give you an indication that a force and a potential outsider is emerging here. Well, they are going to be outsiders, and when you start to look at their path. You're kind of going, okay, they've beaten Austria. Now all they have to do is keep it between the ditches against Northern Ireland and they're in a World Cup semi-final more than likely, more than li- you know. Yeah. More, I, I, I say more than likely because we don't know what Northern Ireland are going to do in the next game against Austria, but, you know, just avoid defeat, really, and they're there. And then you start to look at their route and you go, okay, they lost 3-1 to an England team who really played brilliantly well. But France were good that day as well, as we as we oh, mentioned. Yeah, that was, that was, that was right? one of the games of the tournament so far. It's terrific. Then they play a poor enough Czechoslovakia team. 
and then the 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 hammer coup weight who just kind of disintegrate really over the course of that game and now they're playing an Austrian team who to be honest which have to my mind anyway seem to bring that non-tackling approach into the first half as well certainly by 1982 standards now they play quite well for the first 10 minutes but then they just kind of I don't know they just dissolve they make two changes at halftime which you know I go on about subs an awful lot but still I mean that using your subs in the right way because they're acknowledging yeah we're down but only by a goal and we have to acknowledge we've been brutal did they improve a lot in the second half? No, they, they they pushed on it. They push on a bit, and again, Walter Schachner is the standard ah, guy, top player, top player. But they, and Hintermeyer, Hintermeyer, like at least in in start, uh, one of the most notable non-players against West Germany, does come on a little bit, particularly in the second half. Again, I mean, there's a moment, there's a Tegan a moment on the hour in this game where he takes the ball, maybe five ten yards inside the Austrian half, and just starts running, and he goes past three players. That takes him to the end line and he comes back in and it's saved by Concilia. He, he, t- he tries to shot nearly from the end line when he should really have squared it. There's a couple of players inside him. But what I noticed was no one complains. Like no one is going, oh, why didn't you? Two players come up to him and pat him on the back or on the head or whatever and or have a word. And you can see it's like, keep going, keep it going, you know? The, the, um, the horse is off the bridle here. Like they're just being told, go out and play. It's a joy. It's an absolute joy. And they are now, as you say, with, with one game against Northern Ireland to get to a World Cup semi-final, suddenly France are a serious, serious contender where they probably weren't before this match. I have been busy uh, in the vaults and down in the basement cutting and sawing and putting a game together. Yes. Um, This, ladies and gentlemen, is Marius Pedor. Yeah, from 1978. I rest you my case. Up. I rest my case. France have woken up as Brazil. <laughs> this is up there with Vaya Vaya Canary Canary Himio. Yeah, Sacre Marius from 1978. Wow, I like Not it. Much, yeah, it's, that actually it's sounds nice. funky. It does sound funky. I love the intro, and it's just perfect. My game, my game. Do you want to hear the name? Yes. Guess the French midfielder. They don't you? all have songs, do they? You're not going to play like a series no. of songs. You probably do. It's the I'm, 1980s. I don't think there was any music industry. There was just footballers making songs. <laughs> yeah. And Madonna. Kieran, as, as you said, it's an awful shame some of them weren't paid at an appropriate wage that they didn't have to go and make some of those tunes, but there we go. What I'm going to do is, right, we had one, two, three, four, five French midfielders on the field today, right, at different times, okay? I am going to give you obscure weirdo facts about them, and you've got to guess which fact applies to which, which midfielder, oh. blah, blah, blah. Right. This, really, this, this is already starting to feel like pin the tail on the donkey. It's yeah, your well, much. apart from the last one, which you should get. Uh, right, so I'm going to start off with a very, very simple one, get you warmed up, right? So, okay. which to which midfielder does this apply to? The front of France football, he featured on the front of France football this summer, and the headline was the most beautiful free kick in the world. Gengini, Gengini, yeah, sure. Well done, boys. Well done, well done. Okay, now let's ramp it up a little bit, right? Okay, which of these midfield generals? did feel on three occasions as a manager severely physically endangered like he was going to get beaten to a pulp or possibly killed. Tigana. I'm afraid not. Rob? 
Jures? Yes. Alain Jures. Wow. No. Alain Jures managed Gabon. And they lost the game to Cameroon. He required the police escort to leave the ground. He reckoned he was being targeted. That was number one. Second time round, he was managing Mali. And he got stuck in the capital Bamako during a coup. Yes. So he got a bad fright there. And then the final one, he was managing Senegal. And he was at a press conference. And he reckoned the journalists were going to attack him. They went beyond the limits of decency, he said. It was of such verbal violence. And it could have spilled over into physical violence. They almost threw themselves on me at the end of the press conference. It was a manhunt. Okay. Uh, two down. Two down. You've got three midfielders left. Which of these remaining three midfielders was a known communist? Oh, no. What? Oh, I, I, I'm going to say Rosh at all. Oh. It- Back of the net. Ah, oh, well done. Yeah, like when, well, you know the whole. He, he had the Che Guevara look down. Well, yeah, it's more Eddie Van Halen. I think it was more uh, soft rocker by by 1982. But I had him as a striker though, so I feel like there was a misleading question there. Just well, saying. he came on for Lacom, so that's I again. I'm not taking any follow up anything today. Particularly, I'm not taking any follow up um, tweets or comments on the accuracy of any of these facts. This is basically how Jerez dealt with press conferences. You're you're attacking me. (laughs) The next answer is Lacombe, presumably. (laughs) No, got two left. On Rochdo, he had links to the Ligue Communiste Revolutionnaire. Ugh, that was Mm. bad. And the Lut Ouvrière, the Lut Ouvrière Trotskyite party. So he had connections to them back to the day. Now we got two left. Okay. Which one of the last two was a winemaker? Is a, in fact is a winemaker. Chicken. Ah we. If you know, if so, you know the So by process of elimination, can I say that the last answer is Lacombe? Yes, but can you tell me the fact? No. Oh, there you go. There you go. Well, Tigana, <laughs> Tigana's time. Uh, Taking his time as, as as a footballer, as a club player, was with Bordeaux. So I'll, you can put the rest together as a winemaker. Ah, fair enough. Yes, Bernard Lacombe scored the fastest goal in the history of French international football. Thirty, I've seen thirty seconds or thirty-eight seconds. Either way, it was fast against Italy at the nineteen seventy-eight World Cup. It was uh, he's the it was the quickest goal uh, by a French international footballer in a game. Anyways, we're gonna move on. New game. Good work. Like that. New actual game now. You know, football. Poland 3, Belgium 0. I felt there was something about Poland in that first, I'm going to say, was it a nil-all draw with Italy on day one? I think it was. Yeah. And like, I, all right, second game, yeah, Cameroon game, they, they didn't set the world alight. They blew our minds in game three against Peru, but were Peru poor? I don't know. Now you see it like, ah, like I feel like this has been a big black hole in the history of my knowledge of sport. I didn't realize how good Poland were. Ziggy Stardust has arrived. Yes. Amazing. Oh my he, God. Ha- he has come to earth or ascended to the heavens, whichever way you want to put it. It's Boniek's day, Kieran, isn't it? It's totally Boniek's like, day. There's so many things to love about this game. Uh, the first goal is an absolute belter. The second the beauty of seeing a goal where there are two headers inside the box. How often do you see that? Oh, we've got to get Billy Joe to go and analyse this whenever episode he's on next, just to oh, reanalyze yeah. this. If Billy Joe does this, we won't hear it. He'll have left the He'll room. Like, He'll have gotten so far from the speaker. <laughs> what a header! <laughs> um, and look, the third then, it's a good goal, but it's just the beauty of the two before you're going, yeah. wow, this yeah. is Let's a player. Pay- Let's paint some pictures here, right? So, first goal comes after four minutes. 
It's Bonnie Eck, obviously, as we said. It's a, such a brilliant goal. Um, so there's good play in midfield, and it goes out to our old friend, the legendary Lato, who, by the way, appears to be getting better and better and better as this competition goes on. He is brilliant in this game. He flies past Neil Camps, uh, the fullback, pulls it back into the box. Oh, was it just outside the box, Kieran? Wasn't it to Boniek? Yeah, but the, like that—that's the beauty of it. Like when he's hit the byline, when he gets past, you're thinking, right, yeah. put it across the face of the goal. You know, that's when you can see a heads-up footballer because he doesn't just go right. I'm going to spray it across the danger zone and hope someone gets a boot on it. Mm. Yeah. He looks around and realizes mm. that Boniek is farther back outside the box and cuts back to him. And Boniek doesn't even break stride. He doesn't try to control the ball. He just smashes it with all the fury of a man who knows and wants. He just grab this World Cup by the neck and throttle it and make it his own. Uh, and it's a glorious goal. Glorious statement. Brilliant, but it's brilliant like, moment. Lato's pulled back. Like it, it's, it's just rolling and rolling and rolling. It, it does, it's not going to an area of danger. Do you know what I mean? It, no, just but seems it, like it a, is going to an area of I danger, know. Rob, because he's picked out the one player. It's a beautiful pass, but I'm just saying it's like... If he had played that back across the goal, Belgium have all the, the numbers back. Like, it's almost like the Maradona photo from yeah. from the first yes. game. They've no, got, yeah, they've got yeah. numbers in front of the goal. By pulling it back to where he does, he gets it to the most dangerous player on the field in space. Space. It's glorious. And, it's like, and then it stops being about, like, the area of the box where you're going to get your best chance. And it starts being about players just connecting the ball, the players doing the work. That is the the connecting, connecting. This is what happens in this game. Lato and Boniek, they are in cahoots through the whole game. And, and Bunchal, and Bunchal is outstanding. And is on the left, oh, brilliant! Like, like, but, but I think putting Boniek, they have they've put they've moved Boniek further up the field. He's pretty much a striker now, and mm. um, having played deeper around the midfield area in the previous games, and it is. Absolutely working. I mean, it worked against Peru. It's working again now. The second goal comes after yeah. 27 minutes. Okay. Tell me this, right? So it come, the, the cross is from Kupkovic. Uh, now, I thought it was a wild cross, but maybe it was meant, but it's Bunchal is on the far side of the box, nods it back. It's a big old loop and header back. Ponyak's power on the header, the finishing yeah. header, is superb. But... yeah. And this might be the opportunity, Michael. Where mm. the hell is Jean-Marie Faf? Oh, Faf and about, I'm afraid. He's not did, there. Yeah, I think we've picked the right time to talk about this now, yeah. Yeah, he's not there. And the reasons why he's not there are, well, unfortunate to say the least. In goals on this night is Theo Custer. Custer, C-U-S-T-E-R. Actually played for Espanyol in Barcelona. So that's, that's you know, it was nice that he, he got to play in the city uh, where he was making his living as, as a footballer. But the, the reason he was there is, it's kind of extraordinary, really. I mean, when you consider where, where Belgium were not that long ago, having beaten Argentina, to where they are now. So in the previous game against Hungary, as we know, Eric Heritz, uh, their, their fullback and a really key player for them, collided with John marie Path, the goalkeeper, knocked Heritz out. So he, he, was, he was actually, he was taken home. That was... Almost a straw to break the camel's back, it would seem, with Jean-Marie Faf and Guitaz, the manager, and the players. By this point, Faf was getting on people's nerves, it would seem. And I'm, You're I'm kidding, saying this, an eccentric goalkeeper. I, I know, I know. 
this is this is based on a variety of different sources and, and things that we've read. So we'll we'll go with the story. Uh, apparently, he was getting on people's nerves. He had he had secured a move to Bayern Munich, and he was very very pleased with this, as you would be. But people were getting a little bit tired of him. In between the two group games, the, in between the final group game and the previous one, Tays, the manager, arranged a poolside party at the hotel where the Belgian press were also invited. And one of, anyway, the, it was a well-known Belgian commentator called Jan Wouters, uh, who was a, fr- a good friend of Tays, and he clearly felt that he could do this. Anyway, he was among a group and he played a prank on Faf. He crept up behind him and pushed him into the pool. And there was a lot of laughter and whatnot until they realised that Faf couldn't swim. He was eventually pulled out and was enraged at what had just happened. And he was at, he was annoyed at Taze for not reprimanding uh, routers and so on and so forth. But Taze and others kind of felt that he was making a mountain out of a molehill and they weren't sure could he actually swim or not, right? There was another incident then when the police were called to the team hotel. Faf reported that he had seen someone enter another player's room, Rennie Verhain. When the police arrived to talk to Verhain, they discovered that the person was in fact his wife. So... The vibe wasn't good. So then we move on to the Harris incident where he has smashed into, and you remember he had another incident in that game against Hungary where he nearly split a Hungarian in two yeah. coming, out of the, coming out of the goals. So, you know, he's got a bit of form now. So anyway, so Harris gets knocked out. But in the meantime, after this, after this happens, there's an ambulance call to take Harris to hospital. The ambulance arrives. However, Faf gets in to the ambulance because he has a shoulder injury in inverted commas. So Harris is forced to stay behind. Eventually he gets, I presume he gets to the hospital eventually. It turns out that the shoulder injury that Faf has picked up is, is a minor one, but his behavior has enraged everybody and the decision is taken that he has to go. It's incredible. I know I've told the story and I've read it a number of times in different sources. I still find it hard to credit, to be honest with you. I, they like say- that they have. He's a very yeah. good goalkeeper. They've beaten Argentina in the first game. They've got to the second phase. They've they've done so well in your uh, European Championship 1980. This is their moment on the world yeah. stage, and they're sending them home. This would appear to be what happened. And keep in mind that as well as dropping Faf and Heritz has gone home because he's concussed and monster. Awesome. Know what day of the week it is? They're also missing a defender, Baca. Mm. Who we who we have included on teams of the day, I think, previous to this, and mm. Van der Missen, a midfielder. So they're missing four players. So may as well pack up and go home, really. I mean, it's a disaster. And Theo Custers comes in. I don't think he plays again. As I said, I don't think he plays again. Like Faf is is what is their classic eccentric goalkeeper. You know, he's one of his first games for uh, for Belgium was against the Netherlands uh, in the mid seventies somewhere when Cruyff lobbed him. Uh, scored a goal and it, right there and then Faf went out and congratulated him on the goal which on one level it looks a very a, a very gallant thing to do um, when when such a beautiful piece of skill is executed on you but on another level a lot of Belgians weren't too happy with him that I, he did that I'm going to say now I'm going to posit that had they not sent Faf home Ziggy Boniak would not have got his third goal because more than likely he would have found his way into the stands <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah, I just no doubt about it. There's uh, no doubt whereas, about it. Whereas poor old Custer is, shall we say, a little exposed by the footwork of one of the world's best players at the time. Lad, I, I have a small issue. Like, I, like this third goal is still brilliant. I know the first two are amazing, but it's Mollerick with the really good run. No, Rob, Rob, what, what makes this goal is the cross-field pass from Boniak that oh, starts yeah. it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, to Smolarek. You know, to Smolarek. Yeah. And Smolarek then plays in 
I think it's Lato. Lato. Lato again. And then yeah. all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Lato's kind of facing downfield and who comes hearing in? Only the player that had launched that pass from the right-hand side originally at the halfway line, Boniek, and just dribbles in and casually takes it around Mr. Custer. There is a question of offside. Keep in mind that in 1982, if you're level, you're off. I, I do think it's dodge. So to your point, Kieran, right? Let's mm, say yeah. that, that, that that's called, okay? And let's say that Faf is in goal. I don't think the second goal happens if Jean-Marie Faf is in goal. Because he would... He, like, like, oh, he'd have he'd, he'd clobbered, clobbered the first first header. He would have gone after Bunchal. Yeah. And, but, like, I mean, Belgium are, Belgium are falling apart because even for that second goal, Boniek is able to run into the... Like, if you look at the, the, the replay on the feed we watched was from behind the goal, and you can watch Boniek from a way off. He runs in completely unhindered, and it's a completely and utterly free header from the Bunchal header that he has. So, they're gone. Now, they, they do rally a bit in the second half, and there are... Like, they could have had a penalty in about in the first 10 minutes. Chernotinsky gets completely floored by Zamuda, and it's no penalty after nine, nine ten minutes. But really, that's it. And it's it's kind of... Do, do you find this... I, I kind of found it a little bit sad to watch because, yes, you know... Yes, I did too. They could well, have yeah, been a team... They could have been a team like... The, but, but I think the other thing here is it kind of, for me, and we're only at the first day of this type of second phase, I'm questioning its validity because we've just talked about two teams that I think we can write off now in Austria and Belgium. Yeah, we would have been far better off if this was the round of sixteen or you know the second round before the quarterfinals, and they were just out. Interesting, but their Finish. misery is going to be compounded. Yeah, like I mean, just a very very quick word before I forget for Wilfred van Moor, who starts this game, thirty seven years of age, for Belgium. His debut was in nineteen sixty six. Like right. again, when you, when that's you realize, a career. This is his last game for Belgium and he is a, an incredibly highly rated player all the way through. Like in 1980, like I think I think he retired from playing for Belgium four times and was brought back four times. He was incredibly highly regarded. And in actual fact, in 1980, just two years before, so he's 37 in 82, so he's 35, right? He comes fourth in the race for the Ballon d'Or in 1980 at 35 years of age. It's, I, to that point, certainly I can't, I wouldn't imagine there's been maybe maybe Courtois, maybe, but probably not. There there hasn't been, I don't think, another Belgian player who's reached that level in terms of the Ballon d'Or anyway. Uh, but this is his last game. And he really he he's brought in to try and bring some stability to the midfield and hold on to the ball, but the game kind of passes him by. You can tell man's 37 years of age. That's it. All right. If we're finished on this game, I have a quiz for you because you mentioned the Ballon d'Or and I was like, meant to look up this earlier. So just a really simple one at this point in time. Who won the 1982 Ballon d'Or? But more importantly, two of today's, two players that were involved in today's games were in the top three. I'm going to say Paolo Rossi won the Ballon d'Or. Nice. I'm going to say that the two players that were in the top three were... Bonyak and I'm trying to think who on the French side would have cracked that three. On today's form, you'd have said Jean Tigala, but it's his first game. So I don't know, Mick, what's your reckon there? Hmm. Um, well, I mean, you're naturally drawn to Platini. But not, but in, not playing today, so... I don't know. Uh, of course he's not playing. Um, yeah, he's not playing today, so he's not involved in this. Rob's Rob's still so- playing... I'm, it, I'm still playing Rob, the Marius Trezor music in my head. Can I ask, can you, can you pronounce his name? <laughs> it's questionable. 
Gresham, every second time, maybe. Yeah. Alan Jurez is in the top three. Yeah. Wow. Second. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. He plays very well today again. He's really brilliant as well. Team of the day. Is this really going to be a Poland-France combo by uh, and large? Do, do you know what? I, I think there's a fair argument for Austrian goalkeeper. I would agree. Because I would, I would, he had a lot yeah. to do. Good shout. And then, Good I, shout. then I think when we get beyond that point, we are very much into the France, Polska alliance. Yeah. Could I suggest a three-five-two gives us plenty of midfielders to play yeah, with, and we yeah. do want a lot of midfielders yeah. here. Yeah, we do. Like, yeah, yeah. not so, least because you seem to name them all as midfielders, but we keep going. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where do you want to start with the backs? With the backs, where do you want to start with the defenders? I, I, I'm going to make a case for Zmuda. Yes, Miel Pal. Agreed. He was he was a bit of a clogger at, when he needed to be today, but he was good. Yeah. Um. Uh, let me see if I can get his name right. Uh, number three for Poland. Uh, Cooper. Cooper. Well, I can't do it. You said it earlier, and I was like, "Oh, you need it." You need Kukovic. Kupkovic. My he only was, issue. My only good. issue. My only issue with Kupkovic was he had about three insanely wild shots to nothing. I know, but he's like he's back there defending there was one sliding tackle where he didn't take the man out he got the ball which in 1982 is 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 poetry I mean he didn't even take a chance to kick him he just all right if for nothing else other than Sacra Marius can we have Marius Trezori we we, we, we definitely should yeah yes he was he was super today anyway quite apart from now the big debate is 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 Ziggy you know in our logic that we applied in the last program is Ziggy a forward or a midfielder? Striker. Okay, so that's one of our two up top, okay? Who's joining him in that strike force? That is Trappy. Who played up front for France today? Who could you say? They all seem to play in midfield. Like. They all seem to play in midfield. Yeah, out, but I, I, I would have taught, I mean, in fucking Wikipedia. I thought Smolarek was very good. For Poland again. Mm. I was good. sorry. I was going to shout that as well. I I think each time I see him, I'm he's kind of like he's not the pure flash of the others, but he's always doing his job. So, really so we've really got well. we've got two poles up top, two two poles at the back, and I suspect we're like and we're going to have a decent mix in the midfield. I I'm going to make a shout straight away for right wing is Gregor Lato. No, oh, has to be Gregor Lato. Left I mean, wing, left wing is Bunchal or Bunchal. Well, or... Yeah, we've got it. Yeah, okay, but well, yeah. I think there's going. Uh, I think there's going to be Jean Tigana, Tigana and Jangini. Well, well, hang on a second now. Whoa. And Jures. So, Jures. So we we'll just one second now. So we have Tigana anyway for sure, right? Yeah. yeah. As our holy midfielder, we have Lato. Let's yeah. just go back to Bunchal because I got a feeling it could be a bun fight between Bunchal and Jangini. To be honest, but. Yeah, Jengini um, gets in on the free. I agree with Rob. Bunchal yeah. was, well, was was worth consideration, but he wasn't yeah, like great. Yeah, yeah. That's the key. So there's one more. Two there more. is one more is midfield. Two, two more midfielders. There's one two, two, no, there's one more. There's one more midfield position. So who would you have? Who would you have? You could have Bunchal. I mean we could push Jengini into the middle. Who are we missing there? Rosto? Jures. Oh no, Jures is in there. Oh, sorry, I missed that. Oh, I missed that. That's where I, I thought you were down one there. So, so yeah. Jerez yeah, and Tagana yeah, are in. Lato is in. Let's um, put Cingini kind of Gen- more Gen- in the middle and Gen- we put Bunchal out on the wing. Gini. Here we go. Do you want to hear it? Yes. Call it out. Concilia in goal, Austria. And our back three is Trezor, France, Zamuda of Poland and Kupkovic. Our middle five is Lato, Jerez, Tigana, Jengini, 
and Bunchal, my God, that's another, like yet another black hole of a midfield for where the ball goes in, it ain't coming back out again. <laughs> and Boniek and Smolarek up front. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's the thing. How many, how many poles? One, two, three, four, five, six. Six poles, six poles, an Austrian, and the rest are French. I would have thought that there'd be more French on that team, but there you go. Uh, Poland were the 3 0 winners here, so. Ah, true. All right, day 15 to follow. Who's up for day 15? I hate when I do this. I do this and I set myself up every time and I forget what's on tomorrow, but we, we're so focused on today. It's the way it works. Kieran, any guesses? Any thoughts? Haven't a clue. Well, now. Oh. Well, slap my thigh. Look what's on tomorrow. The big boys are coming out to play. Oh. We have West Germany versus England. Yes. And Italy versus Argentina. Oh, well, listen to this. Cesar Minotti quoted in the paper as saying of, uh, of Italy, they are one of the world's great teams until they cross the halfway line. Ooh. 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 Game on. Right. Bye, folks. Adios. Just before we go, a little request from us to you. If you're enjoying the shows, please follow, like and rate them. We'd love to see your comments and feedback. And if you'd like to support what we're doing, you can always buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Hispania82, where we've left a bonus episode for those who do. See you next time. Thanks for listening.